Hi, I'm Cleo, and this is the podcast in which I use my PhD in English to interpret the songs of Taylor Swift. I'm recovering from a cold, so my voice sounds a little weird, but instead of releasing the next scheduled episode this week, I wanted to record a quick response to Red Taylor's version, and specifically to what is for me the best song on the album, the 10-minute version of All Too Well. I'll have to see if my voice holds up, though, so we'll see how this goes. I was completely blown away by this version of All Too Well, and I admit that it does make me regret slightly the fact that just last week I was saying I'd rather listen to Blank Space. The truth is I could never really connect to the shorter version of All Too Well, although I still did think it was extremely well-written, and I love a lot of the lines, particularly the way it builds to the bridge, you know, maybe the this thing was a masterpiece. But the 10 minute version is just so good. The new or rather old lyrics give it a huge amount of psychological depth and I think they completely change the meaning of the song. So this is just going to be kind of a really basic close reading. We don't really have a theoretical frame for this episode, which is fine because as I said, I've not been feeling well. And I think, you know, obviously this is quite a long text. And so this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to read it sort of a piece at a time and pause a couple of times as we go through to, to kind of discuss what I see in it and what I want to kind of elaborate on. I walked through the door with you. The air was cold, but something about it felt like home somehow. And I left my scarf there at your sister's house, and you've still got it in your drawer even now. Oh, your sweet disposition and my wide-eyed gaze were singing in the car getting lost upstate, autumn leaves falling down like pieces into place, and I can picture it after all these days. And I know it's long gone and that magic's not here no more, and I might be okay, but I'm not fine at all. So this is the familiar All Too Well, a song about a scarf that tells you right off what the payoff is going to be. The affair is over, but both parties remember it all too well in their own ways. The girl can still picture it after all these days, and the guy can't quite let go of the scarf that reminds him of the girl. They're both nice people, essentially, albeit ones with a poor sense of direction. He has a sweet disposition, she has a wide-eyed gaze, it just went wrong somehow, but they can't quite forget each other. That's how it starts, but obviously that's not the story we get, even in the shorter version. This verse is complete misdirection. What it does is bring up this idea of remembering, remembering well. And so we've got a song that claims to be about a perfect recollection. Recollecting something that was perfect and recollecting it perfectly. The question, of course, will be, to what extent is that actually what we get? And of course, we know that this is not the relationship that's being described here, right? This is a relationship in which the man sort of throws everything away. This is the one real thing that he's ever known. He probably doesn't actually have the sweet disposition that he's described as having at the beginning. And that's something that we discover. And so ultimately, it's beginning with a lie, right? It's beginning with a lie about this relationship. Anyway, on to the next part of this. Because there we are again on that little town street. You almost ran the red because you were looking over at me. Wind in my hair, I was there. I remember it all too well. Photo album on the counter, your cheeks were turning red. You used to be a little kid with glasses in a twin-sized bed. And your mother's telling stories about you on the t-ball team. You told me about your past, thinking your future was me. And so I talked about this, I think, in episode three, right? This, this, this idea of the picture, which is sort of this 
reflection on trying to capture particular moments in time and the way in which, you know, even at the moment that you capture it, the the meaning of the thing starts to fall away from it a little bit. And here, you know, the mother's telling stories about him, and we don't know whether or not they're true. But there's this idea of telling stories about the past that that are not necessarily verifiable. And he too tells her about his past, right? We have him narrating his past to her, thinking your future was me, as she says. Taylor is being welcomed into the family and um, into his life. And the way in which that's done is, is by sort of narrating his past to her. He's a much storied man. And then, okay, it all goes off the rails, obviously. And so please note that Taylor has determined this podcast is going to be explicit. So um, I apologize. Don't let children listen to it. I don't know. And you were tossing me the car keys, fuck the patriarchy, keychain on the ground. We were always skipping town. And I was thinking on the drive down, any time now he's going to say it's love. You never called it what it was, till we were dead and gone and buried. Check the pulse and come back swearing it's the same, after three months in the grave. And then you wondered where it went to as I reached for you, but all I felt was shame, and you held my lifeless frame. Let's talk about this. I cannot express the joy that these lines give me, and I am also absolutely fascinated by their response to them. Um, So I'm quoting now from The Guardian's review by Laura Snapes, who was very positive about the album and the song, but notes, quote, One new line early on feels jarringly out of time. You were tossing me the car keys, fuck the patriarchy, she sings. The official lyrics sheet makes clear that she's quoting someone else, but you can't hear the quote marks, and that sort of punchy boilerplate feminist retort wasn't common currency at the turn of the 2010s when she wrote this song. So I agree. I think, you know, these are the first lines that are not sort of the usual all too well. And I think that there is something really jarring about suddenly hearing new lyrics, you know, right at this moment. And the lyrics that we hear then are these extremely surprising ones. This sort of unbelievable rhyme. And you were tossing me the car keys, fuck the patriarchy, (laughs) which feels like it comes out of nowhere. As Snapes points out, Taylor is clearly quoting someone, you know, there are quotation marks around fuck the patriarchy. But I think it's a little bit unclear, you know, whom or what. Someone possible answer is that this is what the keychain says. You can buy a fuck the patriarchy keychain on Etsy. You know, of course, of course you can. And that's what Helen Brown writes in a review of this album in The Independent. So Brown writes that the song is, quote, a more feminist proposition now with new lyrics about a fuck the patriarchy keychain. Okay, so I do think that this is a feminist song. I think that probably because of space constraints, this review collapses this fuck the patriarchy moment into the sense that the song is making this sort of feminist point. But I think that, you know, I don't think that that it's just this sort of straightforward moment in which the keychain and Taylor are united in condemning the patriarchy. I think, in fact, that this is about hypocrisy, you know, male hypocrisy and kind of this performativity that is then belied by the way in which he acts towards the women in his life. We don't know whose keychain it is. We don't know whose car it is. And so maybe it, maybe it is Taylor. But I think the reason Taylor would invoke this keychain, you know, in a lyric is to make a point about him. I don't think that she would mention this if it were her keychain. And so I think that if, if we are reading this as a fuck the patriarchy keychain, as Brown does, I think we have to assume it's his keychain. So ultimately, this leads to a feminist point, but I don't see this as a throwaway girl power line. 
um, which I think some people have interpreted it as wrongly. So my interpretation of this is different, actually. My immediate interpretation when I listened to the song was that this line, fuck the patriarchy, was something the boyfriend said to Taylor as he handed over the keys to let her drive. Um, And so my immediate understanding of the line is that he was sort of saying this because there was a part of him that felt slightly uncomfortable in his masculinity and thinking that as the man, he might be expected to drive and was sort of ceding something of his masculinity to her and sort of having the sexist thought, but making light of it with a joke and thereby, you know, kind of acknowledging it, but acknowledging it in a way that felt like he was kind of beyond that sort of sexist thinking. I can guarantee that this is the sort of thing that a certain type of man would say in this situation. And interpreting it that way, I thought it was a deeply incisive moment. But I looked at the lyrics to try to clear this up. And I think that they are ambiguous because according to the conventions of punctuating lyrics, there was no kind of punctuation after fuck the patriarchy between between that and keychain. And so I don't think that we can say for sure whether this is his speech or the keychains. But Taylor sort of pauses and takes a deep breath between saying patriarchy and keychain. So it doesn't seem to me like all one all one thing. So I do still believe my interpretation of this. I was hoping the short movie would would clear it up, but actually in that scene, we see him sort of walking away, talking animatedly on the phone and sort of tossing the keychain sort of at the ground kind of towards her. And so if anything, it feels like he's saying this on the phone, which doesn't really make that much sense. Or, you know, if it is written on the keychain, we don't, we don't see that. But either way, it's typical of Taylor to leave us with a puzzle about a physical object, the keychain, even as I think she takes a lot of pressure off of the issue of the scarf. Let's get there in a second. We've seen them once again setting off on a drive, this one beginning with the dropped car keys, the last two, of course, having ended in them getting lost upstate and involved him almost running the red light. It's on this drive that they get lost once again, not physically, but emotionally. She expects him to call it love, but because he doesn't, they die. Again, not physically, but emotionally. And death for Taylor is not yet the release it will be in Look What You Made Me Do or The Lakes, the slate wiped clean that allows her to reinvent herself. Taylor is not yet the romantic poet half in love with mournful death. Death here is the death of feeling in a relationship, the attempt to keep up the appearances to go through the motions when you know it's over. Suddenly, this song gets gory, with the boyfriend swearing Taylor's three-month-old corpse is still alive. This is where I started to think about Epiphany, track 13 on Folklore, an opaque track that's a reflection on the trauma suffered by healthcare professionals during the COVID pandemic and the experience of World War II veterans like Taylor's grandfather. And in that song, Taylor describes the soldiers, quote, crawling up the beaches now, sir, I think he's bleeding out. Um, Again, here, actually, a moment of sort of interpolated speech that's not attributed to anyone, but clearly is sort of in the medical register. It seems in this case, this is happening in the battlefield. Later on in the song, she says... Something med school did not cover, someone's daughter, someone's mother, holding her hand through plastic now, Doc, I think she's crashing out, and some things you just can't speak about. And Epiphany is, of course, about sort of literal war and death, whereas all too well the 10-minute version just uses those things metaphorically. But metaphors are particularly important in this song, and even more so this 10-minute version than the 5-minute version. 
Last week, Meredith and I discussed the idea of Taylor being a crumpled up piece of paper. So we know, as I discussed in episode three of season one, that all too well, the shorter version is really interested in the concretization of emotional trauma, particularly around the figure of the scarf, right? This object that stands for memories that won't let you go or that you can't bring yourself to let go of. The 10 minute version of All Too Well actually sort of turns to the body as such an object. And Taylor's lifeless frame becomes sort of an ironic recollection of the photo album on the counter, this cold, rigid collection of memories, her body stiffening into a frame that holds a picture of her lover. And yet Taylor nonetheless is forgetting slowly, a forgetting, however, interrupted by vivid recollection. And I know it's long gone, and there was nothing else I could do, and I forget about you long enough to forget why I needed to. Because there we are again, in the middle of the night, we're dancing around the kitchen in the refrigerator light. Down the stairs, I was there, I remember it all too well. And there we are again, when nobody had to know, you kept me like a secret, but I kept you like an oath, sacred prayer, and we'd swear to remember it all too well. Maybe we got lost in translation, maybe I asked for too much, but maybe this thing was a masterpiece till you tore it all up. Running scared, I was there, I remember it all too well. And you call me up again just to break me like a promise, so casually cruel in the name of being honest. I'm a crumpled up piece of paper lying here, cause I remember it all, all, all. So she's added all this stuff about secrecy, which is really interesting. The idea of the secret relationship is definitely a theme of hers. And it makes sense given the media's interest in her and also, of course, in Jake Gyllenhaal. But the most interesting addition here is probably the sacred prayer line. Sacred prayer, and we'd swear to remember it all too well. And this is going to come back at the end. It's So it's for one thing, it's a callback to holy ground. And it's also a way of formulating the recurring I remember it, you remember it all too well line as a prayer rather than as a statement of fact, a promise that they made to each other that she at least has kept as demonstrated by the song. And a promise is kind of this version of the future, right? This version of telling tales about the future that may or may not turn out to be true, whether or not you keep your promise. And then she goes on to verse three. They say all's well that ends well, but I'm in a new hell every time you double cross my mind. You said if we had been closer in age, maybe it would have been fine, and that made me want to die. The idea you had of me, who was she? A never needing, ever lovely jewel whose shine reflects on you, not weeping in a party bathroom. Some actress asking me what happened. You, that's what happened. You. You who charmed my dad with self-effacing jokes, sipping coffee like you're on a late night show. But then he watched me watch the front door all night, willing you to come. And he said, it's supposed to be fun turning 21. So All's Well That Ends Well is a saying that was already almost present in the title of the song, but of course here nothing ends well. Instead, Taylor ends up in a new hell wanting to die. And we also get this sort of callback to The Moment I Knew, which was a song, by the way, that I thought really benefited from re-recording. And these added lyrics in All Too Well go back to that song's description of the party to which he fails to turn up, and specifically this detail of retreating to the bathroom to cry. And I think it makes really clear the ways in which, you know, this that song and All Too Well are connected. So for example, you have this stanza, Christmas lights glisten, I've got my eye on the door just waiting for you to walk in, but the time is ticking. People ask me how I've been as I comb back through my memory, how you said you'd be here, you said you'd be here. And of course, this sort of points to the, the recurrence 
occurring. I was there, you were there in, in all too well. Also this idea of memory. And then also it sort of does this thing where I think it sort of sets you up expecting the rhyme word you to come up. And then instead it's the recurring, that was the moment I knew. So for example, uh, and they're all laughing as I'm looking around the room, but there was one thing missing and that was the moment I knew. And I think I think you're expecting it to be and that was you or something like that. And in the 10 minute version of All Too Well, uh, you do in fact get this sort of payoff of you. Some actress asking me what happened. You, that's what happened. You. And, and I think the, um, the, the vault songs really make it clear how much Taylor is reflecting on her age in this album. Uh, obviously, of course, in 22, but also in Nothing New, another great song with Phoebe Bridgers, in which she asks, how can a person know everything at 18, but nothing at 22? My friend Clara texted me pointing out that Nothing New kind of fits into my my discussion of um, Olivia Rodrigo the other week and Deja Vu, in, in part, I think, because of the line in Deja Vu, a different girl now, but there's nothing new. That song is sort of about artistic influence and being a, being a type and, and sort of being replaced by or replacing someone and finding in that, you know, sort of a creative, a creative process, a collaborative process. And that's also what Nothing New is about, being worried about being replaced by a younger woman, kind of in the, in the public's appreciation, who kind of is basing herself on you, but then, you know, because of the fact that uh, Phoebe Bridgers is slightly younger than Taylor and sort of, you know, a fan of Taylor's music becomes sort of this collaboration in which, you know, Taylor is not being replaced, but in fact, working with the, the newer artist. Anyway, thanks to Clara for pointing that out. But anyway, in this song, she's pondering the way in which time refuses to pass. So I guess she's still stuck at 21 for now. Time won't fly. It's like I'm paralyzed by it. I'd like to be my old self again, but I'm still trying to find it. After plaid shirt days and nights when you made me your own, now you mail back my things and I walk home alone. But you keep my old scarf from that very first week because it reminds you of innocence and it smells like me. You can't get rid of it because you remember it all too well, yeah. Because there we are again when I loved you so, back before you lost the one real thing you've ever known. Let's do this. Why does the boyfriend not return the scarf? Well, we're told that it's because it reminds him of innocence, the innocence of the woman, sure, but also of his own innocence before he became guilty of all these crimes against Taylor. And we're told that, in essence, you know, he remembers it all too well. I don't buy it. I can't say why exactly, but I just don't buy this. I did buy it in the shorter version, which, you know, starts out as a song about a scarf and ends as a song about a scarf, and I, I bought it, but this is not convincing to me. I'm not sure we're meant to believe that he actually remembers. I think it's very clear in this version that we're hearing, well, Taylor's version, as in her interpretation of everything. And it becomes really clear throughout the song that her interpretation is changing as she processes the relationship. You know, the positive portrayal of the boyfriend at the beginning, the claim that the relationship has been dead for three months, then the claim that it was a masterpiece until he tore it up, and then the idea of him keeping the scarf for nostalgic reasons don't quite add up to me. And I don't think that they're supposed to. Rather, to me, they seem like emotional stages, and the wishful thinking about the scarf feels like just one more stage. I don't know, maybe the scarf got lost in the mail. Maybe he threw it away. I don't know. I don't, I don't believe that, that he kept it. <laughs> This is probably the most controversial thing I've said in this podcast. 
It was rare. I was there. I remember it all too well. Wind in my hair. You were there. You remember it all. Down the stairs. You were there. You remember it all. It was rare. I was there. I remember it all too well. And I was never good at telling jokes, but the punchline goes, I'll get older, but your lovers stay my age. From when your Brooklyn broke my skin and bones, I'm a soldier who's returning half her weight. And did the twin flame bruise paint you blue? Just between us, did the love affair maim you too? Because in this city's barren cold, I still remember the first fall of snow, and how it glistened as it fell. I remember it all too well. And so here, you know, we have the first fall of snow kind of matching the autumn leaves falling like pieces into place at the beginning. Um, Sort of this idea of the fall, as Satan says in Paradise Lost, which way I fly is hell, myself am hell. And then the lowest deep, a lower deep, still threatening to devour me, opens wide, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven. And of course, this is reminiscent of the, but I'm in a new hell every time you double cross my mind. It's sort of this um, endless fall you know, this uh, free fall. The new ending, the ending of the 10-minute version, becomes an assertion of, of Taylor's desire to remain in the boyfriend's memories, her claim to still take up a little room in his mind, despite the fact that he's seemingly gone back on his promise to remember. Okay, and here's the last stanza. Just between us did the love affair maim you all too well. Just between us do you remember it all too well. Just between us, I remember it, just between us, all too well. Wind in my hair, I was there, I was there. Down the stairs, I was there, I was there. Sacred prayer, I was there, I was there. It was rare, you remember it all too well. Wind in my hair, I was there, I was there. Down the stairs, I was there, I was there. Sacred prayer, I was there, I was there. It was rare, you remember it. Wind in my hair, I was there, I was there. Down the stairs, I was there, I was there. Sacred prayer, I was there, I was there. It was rare, you remember it. Wind in my hair, I was there, I was there. Down the stairs, I was there, I was there. Sacred prayer, I was there, I was there. It was rare, you remember it. And there's something about the incantatory repetition of these lines that feels like it's trying to bring back some of the magic that we're told is long gone to make him feel something or remember something even though it's over. And these questions about, you know, do you remember it? Did this maim you too? Turn into this assertion that I remember it. I was there. And the lines, you know, you remember it at the very end, feel at once sort of like an accusation and like a prayer, right? Going back to this idea of the sacred prayer, this assertion that is kind of wishful, that has this tinge of wanting it to be so. This idea of the wind in my hair places her, you know, once again on a drive, on one of these drives that that tend to go so wrong. The song itself tapers off as if carried off by the wind or as if Taylor is being carried away um, towards a different future. And we sort of imagine her with the wind running through her hair, maybe in the convertible she poses in on the cover of the album, scarfless, still lying to herself. That's my reading of this my voice is going. So thank you for listening to Studies in Taylor Swift. You can send in questions or comments to studiesintaylorswift at gmail.com. And you're listening to Happy Strumming by Audionautics. Audionautics.